I've been asked to speak on the father's duty to foster the welfare of his family. After thinking many hours on this assignment, I am persuaded <clears throat> to make a few remarks in an attempt to teach a principle that, if understood and practiced, will make us all more efficient in this God-given responsibility. We have great concern about the growing number of homes in the Church where the influence of a father is hardly felt. In more and more families, the mother and children are left to carry out the father's duties as well as their own. Divorce, pursuit of wealth, and indifference to sacred things are only three of many reasons why fathers neglect the welfare of their families. In this life, a father is never released from his responsibility. We call bishops and they serve for a time and are released. Stake presidents likewise are called, serve, and are released. But a father's calling is an eternal calling if he lives worthily. In 1 Timothy, we read some rather sobering words from the Lord, quoting, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those in his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. The positive definition of the word welfare means happiness, prosperity, and well-being. The Father's duty is to foster the happiness, prosperity, and well-being of each family member. He is to provide for his own. He does this when he provides spiritual and temporal leadership to family members. He provides for the welfare of each family member as he sees their needs and provides a way to help each one satisfy those needs. Of course, when there is no father in the home, the head of the household must assume these duties. We can learn from Brigham, Young exa Brigham Young's example. An excerpt from a letter to his son Joseph illustrates the kind of spiritual leadership a father should give, quoting, Joseph, all the gold in California could not buy my good feelings to you and thankfulness to the Lord. Your mother wishes me to write a few words for her. Her health is about as usual, not very well, but, she see, but, but so she works all day and then till midnight frequently. We feel proud before the Lord when we think what you are doing in the great cause and kingdom of our God. Be faithful, my son. You went out as a child. We trust you will return a flaming elder of salvation. Keep yourself pure before the Lord. Your Father before you has done it, and my constant prayer is that you may. With all my heart, I believe you will. May God bless you forever and ever. Oh, how glad we will be to see you. Signed, Brigham Young. Another excerpt from one of President Young's letters to a son who attended the Naval Academy at Annapolis, Maryland, illustrates the kind of temporal leadership a father should provide. My dear son, be prudent in all things. Adopt the plan of keeping a strict account of all your expenses. By this you will not only understand what becomes of your money, but it will also induce business habits and methods and correctness in financial dealings in your life. You will find that much of the happiness of this life consists in having something worthy to do and in doing it well. It has been wisely said, that which is worth doing is worth doing well. If a man is to drive the plow, let him do it well. If only to cut bolts, make good ones. If to blow the bellows, keep the iron hot. It is our attention to our daily duties that makes us men. Aspire to acquire knowledge that you may be able to be 
to do more good and also to progress in your sphere of life. But remember that you will win only by trust in the Lord, by present contentment, and by doing faithfully that which you have in hand. We all, father, mother, brothers, sisters, friends, and brethren in the office, all join in love to you and in prayers for your welfare. Your affectionate father, Brigham Young. In the home, the father has a primary obligation to stay close to family members and administer to needs, not only through his observations, but also in personal interviews, the father evaluates needs. I know several fathers who have a personal interview with each of their children on a weekly basis. A time when a father really listens can be a memorable and not soon forgotten experience for both. This would be a time when a father would not monopolize the conversation, but rather would lead out with a simple, well-chosen question or two and then sit back and listen. There is nothing that can take the place of a listening father. His ears and heart must both be in tune. There is no substitute. Have you ever thought what might have happened if the Prophet Joseph Smith had not had a listening father? Picture this situation, if you will. The Smith family was a farming family. They lived in New England, where there is a short growing season. They had no mechanical farming equipment such as we now enjoy, and Father Smith needed all the help he could get from his sons. Undoubtedly, they started work early in the morning and stayed in the fields late in the evening. It was in this setting one morning that the boy Joseph came to his father to tell him of a most unusual experience he had had during the night and early morning. A series of visions had come before him. Instead of Father Smith telling his son to hurry on to work, to discuss the matter with him later because there was much to do, he stopped and he listened and then said to his son, It is of God, and told him to go and do as commanded by the messenger. What a wonderful example of a listening father. What a memorable experience for both. Oftentimes, as parents, we may feel we've been listening when, in fact, our children may feel we haven't. Unless our children have no doubt that they have had our attention, I suggest that we haven't done all that is required. We plead for more and better prepared listening fathers. Remember, fathers, you are always teaching, for good or for ill. Your family is learning your ways and beliefs. As President Benson has said, quoting, Your children may or may not choose to follow you, but the example you give is the greatest light you will hold before your children. You are accountable for that light. End of quote. As we think of the role of an effective father, remember this. Without experiencing a gospel principle in action, it is extremely difficult for family members to believe in that principle. For instance, how can a child grow to maturity with the ability to express love to others if she hasn't been loved herself? How would we expect a child to trust others if he's not been trusted? How could we hope that any child could understand the eternal principle of work and other aspects of the welfare program if these principles have not been taught by example in his own home? How can we expect a child to grow to maturity understanding honesty, if honesty has not been the experience of the home. 
We could expand on this to any gospel principle. There is no method as dynamic and powerful in a learning experience as personal involvement and example. Brethren, our ability to give spiritual and temporal leadership to our families depends on the pattern of our lives. We will be effective as fathers only as our lives reflect what we wish to teach. For those who feel it's too late to start a course in self-improvement, may I suggest in the words of President Hugh B. Brown, quoting, Each one of us must live with himself through the eternity, and each one is now working on the kind of man he will have this eternal association with. I say that now is the time to act. It is neither too early nor too late. End of quote. Brethren, it is not too early nor too late to teach your family the principles and the how-tos of financial and resource management, of physical health, emotional resiliency, career planning, liter literacy and educational involvement, and home production and storage. It is neither too early nor too late to listen more carefully, to spend time and to be an example, to otherwise stand at the head of your posterity as a righteous patriarch. May each father this day resolve to fill that high destiny spoken of by Peter, for indeed we must be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. <clears throat> My dear brothers and sisters, I do not remember ever hearing such a splendid period of instruction in welfare work and welfare principles. <clears throat> I've heard, we've heard the prophet, prophet of God, emphasize the importance of this great work and encourage each and every one of us to become fully engaged in the program. We have heard his call, and we must respond wholeheartedly. The great authority of welfare and and chairman of the Welfare Committee has spoken to us and instructed all of us in our duties. The General Welfare Committee of the Church is made up of the First Presidency of the Church, the Quorum of the Twelve, the Presiding Bishopric, and the Presidency of the General Board of the Relief Society, and the Secretary, Quinn Gardner, all of whom have been represented here this morning and have contributed greatly I only hope that I have adequately caught the spirit of this session and may so add something of value. As President Kimball referred to the origins of the modern-day effort in welfare, my thoughts turn to the story of the Good Samaritan. As recorded in the 10th chapter of Luke, in this story, the Savior taught perhaps the most stirring lesson in welfare in the meridian of time. I'd like to read the incident and then trace with you its relevance to our present welfare services effort. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, shall I, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answered, answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind and thy neighbor is thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? 
And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment wounded, and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou is the neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And he said, He that showeth mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. How changed the world this would be if we were all to follow so fine an example of pure Christian love. Let us examine what really took place here. First, the Samaritan had compassion. He had the urge to help, for he felt sympathetic to the wounded man's problem. This kindly affection is brought forth in the heart of anyone who has been touched by the Spirit of the Lord. These emphatic feelings should be felt by each of us toward one another. Indeed, the Savior said that covenant Israel should be known and distinguished by the love they show one for another. Second. The Samaritan went to him. He did not wait to be approached by the one in need, but rather perceived the need and stepped forth without being asked to do so. In that great hymn, The Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief, so loved by the Prophet Joseph, we sense that the high reward promised by the Savior came not just because acts of kindness were performed, but because they were well done were done spontaneously, consistently, and selflessly. Third, The Samaritan bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. He provided medical attention and refreshed the sufferer's thirst. This immediate relief may well have saved a man's life. Fourth, the Samaritan set set him upon his own beast that he is is provided, thus he has provided transportation and brought him to an inn, a place of rest and care. By providing this appropriate accommodation, he ensured the proper conditions for healing to take, to take place. And fifth, the Samaritan took care of him. Notice that during the critical stages of healing, the Samaritan did not turn the care over to the, the wounded man over to others, but sacrificed of his own time, energy, to perform the healing service himself. In a time when it is so easy to leave things to someone else, it is important to have so powerful an example as this good Samaritan. Sixth, the Samaritan on the morrow took out two pence and gave them to the host. He took of his own money, not someone else's, and paid for the service he could not render himself. He thus consecrated of his means for the care of the poor and the needy. Seventh, the Samaritan, needing to continue in his, owning his own, earning his own living, told the innkeeper to take care of him. 
In this way, he enlisted others' resources persons to help and to continue the care. Eight, then the Samaritan promised that whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Here the ultimate in compassion is shown. He puts no limit on the extent to which he will help, and perhaps even more significant, he does not drop it there and forget it, but commits himself to return and ensure that all that could be done has been done. Now this seems to be the consummate story of service. Inheriting it, we find many, if not all, the elements of our modern welfare plan. And while we as individuals cannot always fulfill these eight steps of relief by ourselves, we can, through the welfare system, accomplish all of this. We can and we should give, have compassion. We can and should seek out those in need. The Lord expressly lays this charge on the bishops in the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. We can and do provide medical service, food, housing, transportation, and related assistance. We can and must give ourselves personally as priesthood and Relief Society officers, as visiting and home teachers, as friends and parents and loved ones. We can and do pay our fast offerings as well as produce, produce commodities, render professional service, and donate usable goods. We can and do mobilize ourselves as well as make ourselves available as resource persons. This is usually done through the Ward Welfare Services Committee spoken of earlier. And finally, we can and must stay involved until the solution of the problem is found and resolution of the need is accomplished. <clears throat> this is achieved when the individual in need can once again fully care for himself. It must be emphasized that we do not rely on some outside agency to show the compassion or the person or perform the labor that we have covenanted to do. Now, in order for us to be effective in this welfare services work, there are several basic things that must be done. May I suggest some of the primary welfare services priorities that each priesthood leader should pursue? In brief, they are. First, organize according to the pattern set forth in the handbooks and as directed by your presiding priesthood officer. If we are not properly organized, our welfare services effort are likely to be inconsistent and ineffective. Second, learn our duty. Much material has been made available for you to understand your responsibilities and accountabilities. See to it that you do not lack an understanding of what, what and how you are to proceed in your assignment. Hold regular, effective meetings following meaningful agenda. In all of your meetings, please make adequate provision for reports on assign assignments given. It's the, it's the follow-through on decisions made in our priesthood councils that truly make of us good Samaritans. As we stressed last April, I want to give emphasis to the three crucial meetings that must be held if welfare services is to be carried forward as the Lord intended. These three are the weekly ward welfare services committee meeting, the monthly state welfare services committee meeting, and the monthly state bishops council meeting. Fourth, 
Teach welfare services principles and exemplify them in your own life. Make it a habit to read the report of these welfare services sessions and conference. They contain splendid material on the principles of welfare services. Today we have been instructed as fathers in what to teach our families, as bishops in what to teach our wards, and President Kimball has reminded us of the foundational principles of the welfare service work with which we should all familiarize ourselves. Fifth, establish and maintain those facilities and systems required to respond to needs. Much as, it, as has been said over the years regarding establishing production projects, storehouses, the employment program, appropriate use of LDS social services agencies, and desert industries, I needn't elaborate on what ought to be or how it should be established. Simply let me remind you that according to an appropriate plan, go forth in establishing the Lord's complete program. Sixth, keep the program volunteer-centered. As a state president, I observed the transformation in lives and the happiness gained by those who on church service and volunteer basis gave of themselves as good Samaritans and as good Christians to heal and prosper the lives of others. I believe it was President Lee who said that we must never let our, this program become one of professionals. To the extent possible, we should rely on church service, brothers and sisters, to accomplish much of this work. When it is required that we have full or part-time employees, then let us make certain that those we hire are fully qualified. My brothers and sisters, the work of this Church is moving forward as perhaps never before. May each of us give our, of ourselves wherever we can in the building of this kingdom and be fully self-reliant and compassionate and then, as appropriate, help others help themselves in this great welfare service work and maintain their dignity and self-respect. I leave my testimony with you to the, of the fullness and the truthfulness of this most important work. It is the work of the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In Proverbs, we read of a woman who is the embodiment of the ideal wife, mother, provident homemaker, and compassionate woman. The essence of my message is contained in one of the passages which describes her. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor, Yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. A fundamental doctrine of the gospel, a basic value in welfare services, and a response that has become traditional for both welfare services and Relief Society is the principle of service. The women of the Church are no strangers to service, for Relief Society was born amid hardship, persecution, and sacrifice in a time that called forth the greatest compassion, succor, and service women could give. From those early days in Nauvoo to the present, the records are filled with the activities of women as they have brought relief to the distressed, aid to the poor and needy, ministrations to the sick, and comfort to those that mourn. Service of Latter-day Saint women continues to be in demand now as never before. 
both in the welfare program of our rapidly growing church and in a society filled with problems which increasingly compound. The welfare work of the church is based upon voluntary service, a great amount of which must be performed by women. Women's first responsibility for service is to their families, for this is the fundamental priority established by the Lord. It must be their first consideration and that of all those who call them to positions or seek their assistance in any endeavor. For the building of strong families is fundamental to a strong society. Service in the church most often should be a woman's next priority, with service in the community being a third consideration. Ranking first in the realm of church service is the official calling, which is the formal request made by one having the proper priesthood authority. After prayerfully taking into consideration the family situation and other personal circumstances, <clears throat> the call is to a particular position, such as an officer, teacher, visiting teacher, or missionary. It would be expected that this service would continue for some time. Besides the official calling, there is an official assignment which covers a whole gamut of service opportunities in the church. Before giving an official assignment, a priesthood or a Relief Society leader should take into consideration family responsibilities and church callings. An official request might be made by a ward Relief Society president for compassionate service to an individual woman to meet a specific need of another person. I recently heard of a ward in which there were 70 sisters over 70 years of age. Their wise Relief Society president felt that even those who were homebound could serve, and so she gave each of the 70 sisters either a visiting teaching assignment or a compassionate service assignment. <clears throat> even a sister stricken with a terminal disease was assigned to write three letters to each, to each of three sisters who were homebound. Some sisters were assigned to call sisters each day to make sure they were all right. One sister continued to serve as a visiting teacher supervisor when she was ill and homebound. Her Relief Society president reported that with much effort, this sister put on one of her prettiest dresses before doing the telephoning each month. Feeling that this act gave her service importance and dignity as she filled this assignment for the Lord. Within the official assignment category would be service on a Desert Industries Committee or as a Home Craft Committee Chairman or service in the Welfare Canning Project. Included would also be LDS Social Services where a woman might be assigned as an aide <clears throat> to a caseworker, provide a foster home, or assist with the Indian Student Placement Program. A woman may consider she has been given an official assignment in Relief Society when she is asked to serve as chairman of the Relief Society Homemaking Day Luncheon, to sew a welfare clothing item, to assist at the time of illness or death. These assignments are for specific tasks, but they do not appoint one to a continuing position in the Church. Official assignments would usually be for a shorter duration than a calling, 
and might be a one-time task or duty. Another area of service within the general context of church service is that of individual compassionate service on a spontaneous personal basis. It is the kind of watchful care that each woman is expected to give to a neighbor in need. In the welfare meeting of 1975 and in the Welfare Services Handbook, we suggested that wards keep a current resource file indicating the talents and the abilities of the sisters as well as their needs and wants. The record should include the areas of expertise and availability of the sisters for service. The Stake Relief Society president can help the Ward Relief Society presidents in many ways to encourage the sisters to serve. By making use of the files, in giving Relief Society service assignments to women, in recommending homemaking mini-class courses, or special training in managerial or organizational skills so that women will have more time for service, in recommending sisters to community service projects. By helping women who desire to serve to evaluate their circumstances, commitments, time, and physical strength, married women might like to do this in consultation with their husbands. By encouraging women to enlist the cooperation of family members and others in order to make service easier. A third broad category of service for those who have the time, ability, and energy beyond that needed for family and church responsibilities is voluntary community service. Voluntary community service should be freely given within the area of a particular interest or expertise when circumstances permit. Within this classification lie limitless possibilities of service for women in worthy community causes, civic betterment efforts, or in innumerable ways as concerned citizens. The Prophet Joseph Smith seemed particularly insightful not only with his day and times but with ours as well when he admonished women in the founding period of Relief Society to assist by correcting the morals and strengthening the virtues of the community. There is a reservoir of talented women who are not overburdened with family obligations or with church callings, who can give of their time to rewarding voluntary service that can be the means of improving society or lifting the level of community morality and at the same time underscore the welfare principle of service. This is their opportunity to broaden their scope of service, not only to their own but to their non-church neighbors as well. Through the scriptures, we are admonished by the Lord to be anxiously engaged in a good cause. Almost every woman can find appropriate ways of serving in good causes. A mother with a family of school-aged children may feel the best way to serve her community is by becoming involved in the improvement of the schools her children attend, or by making her family aware of good causes in the community and appropriate ways in which they can become involved, such as in the President's National Family Week. Only when a woman understands the importance and the enrichment of service and evaluates her opportunities, neither making excuses not to serve 
nor overextending herself unwisely can she enjoy the promised blessings of service as she follows the example of the virtuous woman as she stretches forth her hand to the poor yea she reaches forth her hands to the needy it is my prayer that women may with discernment minister the, to the poor and needy even to the poor in spirit and serve them well in the name of jesus christ amen <laughs>